0: We are in the midst of a 15-week sermon series based off of the Psalms of Ascent that are found in Pastor and Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. So we only have three left after today, so we are in the home stretch. Um, we have been following Psalms 120 to 134, and looking at eugene peterson's book to glean some of his thoughts and truths from these scriptures so these psalms 120 to 134 were the songs and the prayers the jewish people prayed and sang to the lord as they pilgrimage to jerusalem for festivals throughout the year so again we're in the home stretch of the series and today we come to psalm 131 and now eugene peterson writes in his chapter about this psalm he writes the christian faith needs continuous maintenance. And I thought, maintenance, that's an interesting word. It sounds like the work that we do on our cars, or maybe the work that we do in the spring to refinish the porch again. So kind of an interesting term, not too glamorous sounding in any way. Um, Other words that mean the same thing as maintenance are preservation, uh, conservation, perpetuation, continuation. So the Christian faith needs continuous maintenance. What does that mean? Well, every week on my way to church and other times during the week, I pass by the Old Worcester Courthouse on the corner of Main and Highland Streets right over here. That building, along with the Old Worcester Odd and the old Volk Tech High School at the Lincoln Square intersection, I think are a daily reminder of how things start to crumble when no one is taking care of them. I don't know if you've noticed them. So about a week ago, I came across a photo gallery on the masslive.com website that had an inside look of the old courthouse. There were nearly 70 photos of the inside of the building. I'm not gonna show you all of them, don't worry. Um, But of this building that has not been used or maintained since 2007. So here are some um, of the the photos that I found there. There are rooms with paint literally peeling off the walls. Dust gathered high, light fixtures, ceiling tiles falling down. This is what happens to a building when it isn't cleaned or maintained. Literally begins to fall apart. We don't see this with our houses that much because eventually we usually clean up something that's a mess. But this is what it looks like. So currently, these, these pictures are from about a year ago. The old courthouse is being renovated to become 100 new units of residential housing. But the developer is not going to just paint over the old paint that's peeling off or just mop the floor. They're hoping to preserve some of the historical features of the building. But things will have to be torn down, paint will be stripped, floorboards will be removed, plaster will be ripped apart, old walls will be rebuilt, windows will be replaced, floors will be redone. Because in order to get to something better and shinier, some pruning has to be done. It's like cutting down old branches so that new growth can happen. If you've been around a church for a while, you may have read the classic pruning scripture in John 15, and it will be up on the slide. Let me read it to you. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, this is part of a larger passage where Jesus is talking about discipleship. In order to lead us where he wants to take us, sometimes the Lord needs to do this. He needs to prune us. Now, the purpose of pruning and gardening is for a plant to grow and bear more fruit. Now, I'm not a gardener. I don't know how this works, really. I'm sure some of you do, but by cutting back branches, more fruit and more growth happens. So pruning here in John 15 refers to the cleansing effect of God's word and speaking into our lives. Now, God doesn't cause, but he may use hard circumstances to prune us as we learn to depend on him more. Or he asks us to give up things that are keeping us from bearing more fruit in our lives. So pruning, this idea of pruning and gardening, is like maintenance on an old building. Again, Psalm 131 is a maintenance psalm. The Christian faith, like a building or a rose bush, needs continual maintenance and pruning. So let's go ahead and turn together to Psalm 131, our psalm for today. And I'm going to read it to us. So it's on page 442 of most of the Bibles um, here in the pews. So it's, it's quite short, so I'm going to give you a minute to turn to it because I'll be done reading it before you get there, if I don't. Um, so Psalm 131, page 442, or you can look it up on your phone, but I'll read it to us. Psalm 131, starting with verse 1. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Now this is one of the shortest psalms in our collection of 150 psalms. It's pretty short, sweet, to the point. Preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, though, he said, he said, Psalm 131 is one of the shortest to read, but one of the longest to learn. So let's unpack why he said that. Again, Psalm 131 is a maintenance psalm. It's functional and helpful to us as believers, like pruning a plant is to a gardener. Now, there are many things that the Lord would like to root out of our lives. We all have different things. But Eugene Peterson points out two things that Psalm 131 specifically would like to prune from our lives. So first, Psalm 131 prunes away unruly ambition. Eugene Peterson has a way with words. I love his phrases. Unruly ambition is unmanageable and uncontrollable desire to achieve, to aspire, and to accomplish. It is healthy aspiration gone amuck or gone crazy. Unruly ambition gets in the way of our relationship with God. It's a stumbling block to us as followers of Jesus because it focuses us on ourselves instead of on the Lord. Unruly ambition leads us to try to run our own lives or the lives of others and leads us to clamor for attention from those around us. Now, in studying up on Psalm 131, I came across the anti Psalm 131. It's this Christian counselor named David Powelson, and one of the things he likes to do is to contrast a biblical, God centered worldview with a functional godless universe of our culture. So he does so by composing what he calls anti-Psalms to show the opposite of the life of faith. So here's his anti-Psalm, up on the screen. Self, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself and my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people and I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap, like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. Mm. Well, let's look at the first halves of Psalm 131 and anti-Psalm 131 next to each other as we continue to unpack this idea of unruly ambition. So again, anti-Psalm 131. Self, my heart is proud. My eyes are haughty. I chase after things too great, too difficult. So of course I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. But then there's Psalm 131, the real Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. So we can easily see some of the main differences here. The anti-Psalm is addressed to oneself instead of the Lord. It talks about the heart being proud, about looking down on others, chasing after things. And I love that line at the end. So of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. And I love it not because it's good, but because it's such a good description of what we can feel like when we try to be in charge instead of letting God be in charge of our lives. I know I have experienced that when we let unruly ambition run amok in our hearts and our lives. But I think what's really tricky and insidious about this stumbling block of unruly ambition and pride is that unruly ambition and pride are some of the core values of our American culture. We are all about trying to do it our way. Living with unruly ambition and pride is a perfectly acceptable way to be in our larger culture. Ambition is completely celebrated. We are surrounded by a way of life where betterment or improvement of one's life is understood as acquisition, expansion, and fame. So let's like think, think about this for a few minutes. How, how does our culture do this? Well, I think in this idea of unruly ambition and acquisition, we are constantly bombarded with ads that say we need something bigger or better to be happier, healthier, better good-looking, or just better in some way. It's all about getting a new product that will make life bigger, better, or at least easier. And then this idea of unruly pride and just expansion. I think we see this in media in general as we're just so much more aware of what we don't have but could. I used to love watching HGTV. (laughs) Nothing against HGTV. Well, maybe. But, you know, all those home remodeling and fixer-upper shows, they're great. I love those people. Now, for me, they were innocent and fun, but I began to see that the result of watching one of those shows was not rest or refreshment for my soul. But I would leave, I would end a program, and I would feel envious and bitter. I love... My home and what the Lord has provided for me—way more than when I'm not when I'm not focused on what I don't have. Now then, there's fame. Our culture celebrates being known, having at least 15 minutes of fame. I feel like I grew up thinking that's what I was going to have at some point in my life—was 15 minutes of fame. Have you had your 15 minutes of fame yet? I don't think I have. But we want others to know how great and important we are. And again, nothing against social media, but maybe social media exasperates this as it promotes us promoting a version of ourselves to the rest of the world. Unruly ambition and pride can lead us to focus on ourselves and not others as we seek to broadcast a specific version of ourselves in order to be liked, accepted, commented on, loved, or retweeted. But, like one Christian writer comments, if I find my identity in the community's perception of me, I am no longer free to serve the community. So what does running after all of these things, acquisition, expansion, fame, All of these elements of pride and ambition, what do they do to us? They leave us with a restless and an unquieted heart, with worry, anxiety, envy, unrighteous desire, and pride. But the psalmist writes, Psalm 131, my heart is not proud, Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. The opposite of unruly ambition is a disciplined quietness. I have calmed and quieted myself, says verse 2. I think the best way to go after a quiet heart is to cultivate humility in our lives. Author Adele Calhoun writes, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humble people let go of image management and self-promotion. They honor others by making others' needs as real and as important as their own. This is the way of Jesus. Choosing humility rather than unruly pride and ambition. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, Jesus saved us from our sins by choosing the way of humility rather than choosing the way of power or ambition. And he had power. Jesus gives us the ultimate example of how to live unselfishly. So I think for us, the practice of the spiritual discipline of humility can include some of these things. And they'll be up on the slide. It can include refraining from image management. Humility can include deliberately keeping silent about accomplishments and talents when we have the opportunity to do so. It can be refusing to impulse, the impulse to name drop. Choosing humility can mean backing away from being the center of attention or drawing others out, and drawing others out instead. Humility means avoiding favoritism and honoring others as God does. And Choosing humility means choosing downward mobility for ourselves so that others have more. So I'm just curious as you look at this list, do any of these stick out as things that the Lord may be inviting you to try or to think about in order to cultivate humility in your life? And I think cultivating humility is a great practice because it can give us amazing fruit in our relationship with the Lord. Most of all, like the psalm says, it can give us a quiet heart. But it also gives us a liberation from the need of others' approval that can just be so suffocating. It can help us to live an authentically grateful life that leads to joy. Cultivating humility helps us take our identity as God's dearly loved children rather than taking our identity from our possessions or our accomplishments. And cultivating humility helps us get get the fruit of becoming more like Jesus. So again, Psalm 131 prunes away unruly pride and ambition in our lives it's a great psalm to pray for that so that was the first point psalm 131 prunes away unruly pride and ambition but don't worry there's only two points today okay and the second one will be shorter than the first so second psalm 131 prunes away infantile dependency Eugene Peterson has a great way with words. Psalm 131, verse 2 says, I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Now, this is important. Peterson writes, Having realized the dangers of pride, the sin of thinking too much of ourselves, we are suddenly in danger of another mistake, thinking too little of ourselves. The answer is not to do nothing. The response is not to seek after nothing. Instead, Psalm 131 paints the Christian faith as a childlike trust. So in Mark 10, we see Jesus explaining this in a short passage that I'll read. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Jesus gave us the picture of a child as a model for faith, not because of a child's helplessness, but because of a child's willingness to be led, to be taught, and to be blessed. A weaned child, as described in the psalm, is not a helpless crying baby, but is a happy, content child sitting quietly and confidently next to their parent, knowing that they are cared for and secure. Now, I have never weaned a child, but I hear that it can be a terrible thing. (laughs) The transition from breastfeeding to a weaned child is not always smooth, I hear. It can be stormy and noisy. There are sobs and struggles, but it eventually leads to a quiet security. I want to read an extended section of Peterson's chapter about this because I think it's so helpful. And he just has a great way with words. So let me read this. Many who have traveled this way of faith have described the transition from an infantile faith that grabs at God out of desperation to a mature faith that responds to God out of love, like a baby content in its mother's arms. Often, our conscious Christian lives do begin at points of desperation, and God, of course, does not refuse to meet our needs. Heavenly comforts break through our despair and persuade us all will be well and all manner of things will be well. The early stages of Christian belief are not infrequently marked with miraculous signs and exhilarations of spirit. But as discipleship continues, the sensible comforts gradually disappear. For God does not want us to be neurotically dependent on him, but he wants us willingly, trustful in him. And so he weans us. The period of infancy will not be sentimentally extended beyond what is necessary. The time of weaning is very often noisy and marked by misunderstandings. I no longer feel like I did when I was first a Christian. Does that mean I'm no longer a Christian? Has God abandoned me? Have I done something terribly wrong? The answer is neither. God hasn't abandoned you, and you haven't done anything wrong. You are being weaned. The apron strings have been cut We don't use that phrase anymore, but you can imagine what it means. You are, in a sense, you are free to come to God or not come to him. You are, in a sense, on your own, with an open invitation to listen and receive and enjoy our Lord. Let's look at our anti-Psalm and our psalm again next to each other. See this end of the chapter. Anti-Psalm 131. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. But Psalm 131, I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Again, look at how different these short descriptions are. Fussing and wrestling versus being content. Scattering hopes and putting hopes in the Lord forever. So one way to move away from the infantile dependency of this anti-Psalm is to seek after the content hope of Psalm 131. And to do this, we have to cultivate teachability in our lives. We have to seek after teachability. Now, teachability means having the desire to remain a lifelong learner who is continually open to the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit and what the Lord wants to do in our lives. Author Adele Calhoun writes that teachability is the propensity and openness to learn from God. Practice of teachability can include, and it's up on the screen, an appropriate openness to letting scriptural scripture define and shape us, letting it speak into our lives and change us. It means curbing a know-it-all attitude. It means asking questions of others ahead of us in the, our faith that can lead us to a deeper understanding of the Lord. It means praying that the Lord would have his way in you and then doing what he says. It means listening more and talking less. So, again, from this list, do any of these rise up or stick out to you as something that the Lord may be inviting you to do? Because these things, they can lead to the great fruit of teachability in our lives. We've already seen it can lead to contentment instead of restlessness. Practice of teachability actually leads us to be humble, which is helpful as well. Helps us become aware of any hardness of heart that we may have and allowing the Lord to prune away any unwillingness to grow. We get the fruit of being a lifelong learner in the life of faith and the fruit of growth and maturity in Christ. Let me just read Psalm 131 to us again. I know I've read it a lot, but it's short, so it's okay. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. Again, life with God needs continuous maintenance. Psalm 131 shows what that maintenance needs to be, what needs to be pruned. Unruly pride and ambition and infantile dependency. Remember the old courthouse? It's going to be a slide of an artist's rendition of what it's going to look like. As my son likes to say, "Mm, it's going to look nice and modern now. It is going to look completely different, but also still look like the old courthouse. And that's exactly what growing in Christ is allowing him to shape us and change us and prune us to prune things out of our lives so that we can grow into more mature versions of ourselves to become the people and followers of jesus that he wants us to be and that he has created us to be that's what the comment of the christian faith needs continuous maintenance means if we leave it alone if we leave our faith alone It decays and falters, and growth is stunted. And I just want to say, it's not easy. Being pruned can hurt, just like the courthouse may even look worse before it gets better. But if we allow Jesus to grow us and stretch us, and if we listen to him and obey us, he will do that. He will grow us and mature us. We will experience a depth of relationship with him that we wouldn't without. So I just want to take, let's take a brief moment. I'd love just to give us a moment of having a quiet heart. So just take a moment and just ask the Lord, pray to yourself, is there anything you want to prune in me, Lord? Is there anything that you would like to speak to me about unruly ambition or infantile dependency? Lord, would you speak? Amen. And pray that the Lord would continue to speak to us. Um, and I pray that as a church family and as individuals, let's, let's continue to let Jesus prune us of unruly, ambition and infantile dependency by seeking to cultivate humility and teachability in our lives. Let's pray.